0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for the work that you are doing here at Christ Church and Lord, for time to gather together. Lord, we pray a blessing over Christ Church that as they continue to do work here in this city, in the heart of our city, Lord, that you would bless and keep them, that you would cause your face to shine upon them. Um, And Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together on this last Sunday of the year and the last Sunday of the decade with one another. Um, And Lord, I pray that as we look towards the future that you remind us of the worth of the gospel and the good news of what you're doing. Lord, I pray that as I speak that you speak through my words, Lord, and above all else that you get glory in this place. We love you. We praise you. We're so thankful for your good and glorious gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for having me here this evening. I'm gonna probably say this morning at some point. I'm so thankful. I've been praying for your church. I'm really excited about what you are doing here in the downtown area. Uh, Like Clint said, I'm born and raised in Albuquerque. Love this city. My wife is actually also from here. We were both, we met in high school. Uh, We went to separate places and actually were married when I I was living in Denver. Uh, And then we came back to Albuquerque. Which, as you can imagine, makes for a busy holiday season, Uh, going from house to house, going from place to place, knowing people in the city, being asked lots of icebreaker questions. One of the best icebreaker questions, one that you get asked, I get asked often at least, is, what was your favorite Christmas gift? Now, this wasn't my favorite Christmas gift, but it's certainly my most creative one. When I was 19 years old, my cousin and I were driving down Academy about this time of year. We were both back from college. And my cousin looked over at me and he said, did I get you a Christmas gift? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, slow down the car. And so I started to slow down the car, going about 15 miles an hour, to which my cousin then leans out of the car window, reaches out, and grabs a traffic cone, and pulls it back into the car and says, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Now, I wish I could tell you that I was a better person than I am, and then I said, no, we need to go put that back, but I immediately saw this as an opportunity. I had just moved to Denver. It was really cold around that time of year. In fact, that was the year that with wind chill, it got to about negative 21 outside. And it was really hard to find parking. And so I would often drive to class when it was cold and I saw this as a great way to reserve my parking spot in front of my dorm. And so I got back early as I played basketball. I had to be back at school so I found the premium spot and I put that traffic cone front and center right in front of my dorm. I drive off, I did this for about three months and I'd save my parking spot that way. And I was, a, I was a fair person. I would often leave it in front of the dorm so other people could use it if my car was parked and they needed a spot. And so one day in the spring I'd walk to class and I'm walking back from class and what do I see but a security guard carrying my traffic cone. Now, if you're a good rule breaker, you know this, you don't go in hot with accusations. You don't go tell them, that's my traffic cone, give me back my traffic cone. You go in a bit more tactful, and so I went up to him, I said, hey, what's the deal with the traffic cone? And he looked me in the eyes and said, some rule breaker, some punk kid has been using this to reserve their parking spot over the last few months, and we've been trying to get a hold of it. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, what kind of person would do something like that? (laughs) I like to break the rules. And if you're a good rule breaker, you know to ask the question, is this worth it? Is this going to be worth it in the end? And this isn't actually just a question for the rule breaker but we ask this question a lot in life. Maybe you're asking that question about if you're about to ask somebody out on a date or maybe even to ask somebody for their hand in marriage. Maybe you have a roommate and they've given you some kind of minor annoyance and you want to know is it worth addressing this with them? Maybe it has to do with a job change or a housing move, or maybe it has to do with a family member and some kind of drama that you wonder if it's worth addressing. See, the question is, will this be worth it? And this is certainly a question that we ask about the gospel as well. See, as the new year arrives and the decade dawns, maybe you're pondering this very question yourself. Is the gospel worth bringing up at the coffee shop? Is the gospel worth talking about with a family member that wants nothing to do with God? Is it worth letting others know what I believe? And this question can actually linger with us as we wonder about the worth of the gospel in the face of present discouragement and maybe even future opposition. This morning, as we look at our text in Acts, this question certainly would have been on the lips of the early church. They've been beaten. They've been left for dead, imprisoned, abused, and even had entire cities turn on them. They've wrestled with the reality of persecution and oppression, wondering if the gospel is worth all of this hullabaloo. And in the midst of all of this, the question lingers, is the gospel worth it? Is it worth pressing on in the midst of all of these things? Well, as we come to our text this morning, Paul offers encouragement to the believers across the Christian world. And that even in the midst of persecution, the gospel is worth more than life itself. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 20. I don't know what page they're on. I'm sorry, it's on page 1041 in my Bible. Um, But this morning, we have a lot of ground that we wanna cover. And so actually, we're gonna hop around a little bit. I'm gonna summarize some in certain places, so I would encourage you this week, on your own, go through and read the text. Uh, Study and look through it, even Google a map, because Paul is traveling all over the world in this passage. But as we arrive at this passage, first we need to recognize where we are in the middle of the story. Because as we arrive at Acts 20, we actually arrive at a hotbed of action. See, Paul has been preaching in Ephesus for over two years with his companions. And the gospel has been on the move in the city. It says that Paul is so filled with the Holy Spirit that as he's preaching, that his sweaty work rags, as people touch it, that they're healed. Throughout the city, the gospel has been doing incredible things, disrupting major sources of uh, major economic sources. For instance, the magicians in the city encounter the gospel, and as they encounter the gospel, they go and burn their books, and as they burn their books it would cost them about six million dollars in today's currency. It's disrupted the, uh, the economics of the city that some people are not able to make money anymore. And it's actually not without consequence. In fact, right before this passage, we find Paul in the early church in the middle of a riot. As the gospel's affected the ability of some to earn, a mob mentality breaks out and the people revolt, spurred on by the silversmiths of the city. They cheer for their goddess Artemis, proclaiming how great she is, and countering what they see as Christian subversion. And eventually, in the middle of this riot, a civic leader stands up and calms them, informing them of the different legal actions that they can take in the city. And this is an incredibly disruptive moment, one that both reveals the power of the gospel, but also paints a picture of the ongoing opposition that the church is facing. And you can imagine this leaving the city in an uproar, causing the people within the church to, one, to be cautious and to wonder about what it looks like to re-engage with society. And as we pick up the story, the early church is left dealing with the aftermath. It begins with Paul deciding to head out on a new journey after his time in Ephesus is coming to a close. This is what it says starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much more encouragement, he came to Greece. So as the riot has ceased and things have calmed down, Paul calls for his disciples. These are probably the people that he's been raising up in Ephesus over the last couple years to lead the church. And he encourages them, he gives them a farewell and he sets off on a new journey. And this is probably for a couple of reasons. One, he's probably aware of the legal action that's waiting for him in Ephesus, realizing that it's probably a good time for him to leave. On top of that, though, he also obviously wants to encourage these churches throughout Greece. And so Paul leaves on this journey through Greece and back. And while we won't read the next few verses, what we see is that Paul actually from Ephesus, which is kind of in the center of uh, where modern-day Turkey is, kind of where the coast would have been, he travels all the way through Greece and then comes all the way back over these next three or four verses. And while he's doing this, he's actually doing a couple of different things. The first is that while he's traveling, he's seeking to encourage these churches. Paul knows, as we're going to find out in just a moment, that he's headed towards imprisonment. And so as he heads this way, he seeks to bolster these churches for a final time. In fact, this is where we see him encounter and work with the church in Corinth, writing one of the letters. This is where we'll see him engage uh, with some of these different churches that we, have, we can read his letters now. But at the same time, one of the other things that he's doing, one of the important tasks of his ministry, is that he is raising a, a gift offering for the church, the poor, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And Luke only mentions this briefly in Acts a bit later on, but we see it pop up in Paul's letters to both the Romans and to the Corinthians that he's doing this thing, that he's raising this gift for the churches there. And so he's going to travel extensively around the region, raising this gift, and eventually he starts to head back from Greece, back towards Jerusalem. But now, we find out at the end of this passage, again, we won't read it, but starting in verse 4, that he's joined by a posse. But, and there's a couple of, we won't read all their names, but there's a couple of interesting things that are going on with this group of believers here. The first is that they're from all the churches that he's been collecting. It's representatives from all the places that are sending money for the offering. The second that's really interesting is that it's a collection of Greek believers In fact, we see some Greek names in here coming from probably primarily Gentile churches. Again, Luke, throughout the book of Acts, will highlight this over and over again, that the unity between the Gentile and the Jewish believers, that the gospel is for all people. Again, we see a group of Gentile churches gathering together to send money, to bring money to the Jewish uh, believers in Jerusalem interesting too because they would have served a couple of different purposes historically one is that Paul's probably carrying a massive amount of money at this point and there is safety in numbers growing up here in Albuquerque I used to go to a lot of metal concerts which you can't tell now but um, I used to go to all these metal concerts and I learned pretty quickly that if you want to go to those types of shows that you need to go with a group of people because there is safety in numbers you never know who you'll run up against But the other interesting thing about this group is that they also probably would have protected the integrity of Paul. As they gather together, as they head towards Jerusalem, remember, he's carrying a lot of money. And these people would show that Paul wasn't embezzling or doing something immoral with this money. So we have this group of Gentile believers gathered together, headed towards Jerusalem with Paul. And as they're headed towards Jerusalem, we have one of the oddest encounters in the Bible right after this. It says this, starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead." Paul and his group of believers, his group of friends, stop in the city of Troas. It's actually probably most likely that the stops that we see throughout this story are because of the shipping schedule. And so he stops in Troas, and there he goes to encourage the church. And as he heads to encourage the church, it's at the end of a long workday. They gather together late at night, and Paul just starts to talk. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Often when missionaries would come, we would go listen to the missionaries speak, but none of them ever spoke well past midnight. And you can imagine, at the end of this long day, it's hot in the room, there's these lamps, there's probably poor ventilation, and Paul just continues to preach on and on and on. And as he preaches, a young man named Eutychus, whose name ironically means lucky one, falls asleep sitting in an open window and falls to his death. Now, interesting note about Eutychus in this story, the term young man could literally mean young man, which was someone that was from about 18 to 30 years old, but it was also a term that was commonly used for a slave boy, calling them a young man in kind of a derogatory manner. It could be that Luke here is actually again showing the diversity of the church, that the different socioeconomic classes that are gathered in this small descriptor. But either way at this point in the story it matters very little because he's dead. So, this is what happens next in verse 10. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, "Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him." And when Paul had gone up and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them until daybreak and departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Paul rushes down with the community, embraces the dead body, and raises the young man to life. And after this happens, as one naturally does, they all go back upstairs, comforted, and Paul continues to preach. It's such an odd moment in scripture. In fact, it's one of the oddest stories in the Bible. I mean, is the moral of the story, don't fall asleep in church? What's going on here? Actually, I was talking about this uh, with somebody in your congregation uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this passage, and he said, yeah, I used to fall asleep after my dad's sermons. Uh, He would preach for about an hour, and then I was out. It just seems like such an odd place in Scripture, but what's happening here is actually incredibly important. See, there's actually only five people to perform resurrections in the Bible— In the Old Testament, there's Elijah and Elisha, uh, both two of the greatest prophets. Jesus resurrects people as the son of God. Earlier on in Acts, we actually see that Peter resurrects a woman named Tabitha uh, who served faithfully in the church. And now we have Paul resurrecting a young man from the dead. See, the people with Paul would have most likely known these stories and been in awe of the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the power of the Holy Spirit is evidenced in Paul. It's on full display in a rarefied manner. It's a descriptive moment, elevating him among the other greats of the faith. What's doubly interesting actually here too is how they respond. Returning to the teaching and proclamation of God's word. To be honest with you, if it was me that raised him from the dead, that would have probably been my closing move, my finishing joke. I would have said, that's my time. Don't forget to tip your waitresses, mic drop, and then left. But here, they actually gather back together. They go back up and continue to hear God's word. The miracle is important enough to mention, but it's not important enough to derail their gathering. Now, this brief vignette actually leads back into travels for Paul and his companions. And in fact, the next bit reads a lot like an ancient travel log, sharing more the schedule and logistics of the trip. Again, probably following the trajectory of the shipping schedule. And because of that, we actually see that Paul arrives in this place called Miletus, and he invites the Ephesian elders to come meet him there. See, he's pressing on as quickly as he can towards Jerusalem, so he bypasses Ephesus. And again, this is probably most likely due to the shipping schedule, but it also could be because, again, he knows what awaits, awaits him there. So the elders come and meet him and this is what he has to say to them starting in verse 18. And when they came to them or when he, they came to him he said to them You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but i do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only i may finish my course and the ministry that i received from the lord jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of god and now i behold and now behold i know that none of you among whom I, I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who, who were here with me. And in all things I have shown that by, the working, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul begins by sharing about his ministry and message That he's a slave to Jesus, performing the duties of a slave with all humility, renouncing authority and selfish striving, and enduring the trials of an embattled ministry. Paul shares about his work in Ephesus, how he shared with the Jews and Gentiles, working to break down the dividing wall of hostility, or as how he describes it in Ephesians 2. That this has been a difficult labor of love, one that has been full of trials and will be filled with more trials as he returns to Jerusalem. Yet even so, note that it's worth it for Paul. The most important thing for him is that much be made of Christ, that he testified to the good news of God's grace. And see, this is a radical statement because up to this point, Paul has done a whole lot for God. He's traversed the known world, meeting and reaching people, planting churches and writing letters, which was no small task, to encourage these churches. Yet even so, he doesn't want to rest upon these laurels, but engage of the work of Christ, even if it means giving up his life. In fact, Paul stands at the beginning of a long line of people who even knowing their fates would engage in this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1940s uh, was pastor in London of German descent. And he was invited back to Germany to help start this seminary His friends in London gave him the same warning, do not go back, you'll be killed there. And Bonhoeffer said, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I went back and where his fate was met, where he died for what he believed. See, Paul stands at the forefront of a long line of people who would engage in the same way. See, because of the work that he's put into the church up to this point, he feels comfortable leaving them to be responsible for their own work. In fact, this is what, I wash my hands of your blood, it sounds harsh, but this is what he's saying, I leave you oversee the church. You are now in charge. And as he does so, he leaves them with both an encouragement and a warning here. The first is he starts by exhorting them to remember their identity as leaders, that they're leaders, but that they have been bought with the blood of Christ. Be encouraged that as they lead, they do so in the reality of God's good grace, rescued from condemnation. But in light of this, he also warns them, be wary of opposition. This likely comes from experience. Remember, right before this, he would have been engaging with the church in Corinth and seeing firsthand the dangers of wolves arising from the congregation and leadership. He's aware also of the revenge that some of those in Ephesus that they have slighted, such as Demetrius and the silversmiths and the gathering of the magicians in the city, would have liked to have on the church. And this is actually not the only time that we'll see Paul give this warning to others that he's encouraging. He'll talk about this often in his letters. He closes his exhortation by encouraging them and commending them to the message of God's grace, to the inheritance that they have received. And he encourages them to take care of the weak and to remember the words of Jesus in this endeavor. And with this, his time with the Ephesian elders closes They gather in an emotional goodbye, embracing Paul, knowing that this will be their last time together. Yet, even so, Paul's not swayed by them wanting him to stay, but he continues on to Jerusalem. We'll actually see that he makes a brief stop in Tyre, and it's interesting the stop in Tyre. He doesn't know the church there. He's stuck there for 10 days, and he goes and meets the church gets to know them, they actually also see the prophetic warning that something bad is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and they try to keep him from going. Paul encourages them, says, I must press on. And he continues on, arriving in Caesarea in the house of Philip. And now there's a lot going on in this story. Again, we'll just mention a couple of brief things. But one of the interesting things is that as he arrives at the house of Philip the evangelist, it says this in verse 12 almost seemingly randomly. In verse 12, it says, oh, sorry, not verse 12. I had this wrong in my notes last week when I preached this as well. Uh, In verse 9, it says this about Philip and his family. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. It's interesting because Philip's daughters are mentioned here almost as a side note. But actually, again, this is incredibly important to see what's going on with the church here that four unmarried women have prominent roles in the church. Again, it's a shocking surprise, one that would catch the reader off guard because these are people that would have very little status in society. But again, Luke seems to be inserting and asserting that the church is full of unexpected people. Second thing that's really interesting that happens here is Paul encounters the prophet Agabus, somebody that pops up earlier in Acts. And he actually gives a dramatic demonstration, binding his hands and feet with Paul's belt, showing him what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And when this, act, when this warning happens, the church pleads with Paul, asking him not to go to Jerusalem. They say, please do not go. This is what is waiting for you. And this is actually what it says happens at the end of this passage, <clears throat> starting in verse 13, or verse 12. When we heard this Eventually, the church tries to, they try to convince him, but they eventually wash their hands and say, the Lord's will be done. And it's with this that Paul closes his time, gathering some of his disciples and heading towards Jerusalem. And actually with this, our story ends on a cliffhanger, leaving the reader wondering what will happen to Paul next. You'll have to read it on your own. It's a really interesting story. But this story that we've read this evening, not morning, is packed full of travel, vignettes, encouragements, and warnings. It's full of insights and pictures. But it also gives some clear depictions of the present message of the gospel. In fact, there's three incredibly important things going on that are with the gospel that are revealed about the gospel message in this passage. They'll seem probably pretty simplistic at first. The first is this, that the gospel is for all people. This seems like simplistic good news, but it can be hard to embrace and believe in our current environment. Just reflect on your holidays. As you sit with those who are different than you, those family members who have different political beliefs or social beliefs, who have different cultural norms, it's hard to believe that the gospel is for them as well. And this isn't actually just limited by the holiday season. We like to be with people who look like us, act like us, think like us, and vote like us. We want those to be the people that we hang out with, but also the people that we go to church with. This is actually what led Martin Luther King Jr., one of the things that led him to proclaim that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And just because we're meeting in the evening doesn't mean that we're exempt from this as well. Yet Luke, throughout this passage, makes it incredibly clear that the gospel is for the outsider, the outcast, and those who are different. That it's a mixed church for all who follow Jesus. It's for the Gentile believer who gather together and head to Jerusalem. It's for the young slave boy drowsily listening to the gospel. And it's for the young unmarried girls on the fringes of society, but in the center of the church. See, the gospel is for all people. It's for those who are here this evening and those who are out in our city who have not heard the good news of Jesus. It's for your neighbors and your rivals and everything in between. It's for the outcast, the downtrodden, the heavy laden, and the weary. See, the gospel is for all who call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. This truth is found in the old hymn when we sing, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, full of power. He is able, he is able, he is willing doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. And if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. See, the gospel is for all people. Those who don't look like us, don't think like us, don't vote like us. And we can forget this as we go out into the world. But it's also incredibly important that the gospel is just not only for all people, but as we go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel, as we show people the good news of what God is doing, that it will not always be well received. See, it's important to remember that the gospel also inspires opposition. All throughout the passage, we actually see that Paul faces oppositions or warns of oppositions that are to come. He has to leave Ephesus because of these issues. Uh, He has to take an alternate route earlier in the story due to the plot of the Jews. He speaks to the injustice that he's faced over time for the sake of the gospel. He warns of both external and internal opposition that are facing the church in Ephesus. He's aware of what faces him as he heads towards Jerusalem, knowing that he faces persecution, danger, and even potential death. And what's interesting is that this will continue on with the early church. In fact, we know that things are going to get a lot worse before they get any better. Soon, people will lose their homes, their status, and their livelihoods. Soon, people will be paraded out as martyrs in an arena to die for sport. The opposition that they face is both overt and covert as they're attacked from all sides. See, when the gospel is on full display, opposition will surely rear its ugly head. Sometimes this is overt opposition. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor in New York City named John Tyson. And before he started his sermon, he actually issued a plea to his church. A few years ago, they had planted a campus of, that started with 40 people that had grown to 500 people in the heart of East New York City. And they had been informed that the place that they were meeting no longer wanted a church there. And they said, find a building, you have five weeks. And so he issued a plea to his church saying, we need to find a place for these 500 people to meet. And the only place we found is 10 times the cost, can you help us? It may not always be that overt, sometimes it is far and more likely it is covert coming up in conversation. Maybe you felt it as your family goads you for your beliefs. Maybe even your closest friends have mocked you for the things that you hold on to be true. See, even in the midst of hardship, remember, brothers and sisters, that this is not a sign of the gospel failing, but rather a sign of the gospel flourishing. Paul notes that it caused him tears and trials when people rejected him. See, the work of the gospel will be opposed at times, and ministry will be hard. And this isn't just merely a nihilistic or a negative word, but a reality of our walk with Jesus. And to be honest with you, if this is all that there is, it's a really hard and dark word. Maybe you've experienced this before in the last year or the last decade, and you're heading into the new year asking yourselves, why should I carry on with the gospel then? This is the case that we'll be with people who are not like us and those who oppose us both from within and from society at large. Is it actually worth it? Well, for Paul, the answer is a resounding yes. See, the third thing about the gospel for Paul is that the gospel is worth more. It's easy to ask if the gospel is actually worth it. Is the gospel worth more than fill in the blank? And this is a question that we ask at society at large. In fact, a few years ago, in 2015, the rapper Meek Mill released an album called Dreams Worth More Than Money. And that album cover had a stack of $100 bills, but as, as on the other side of that stack folded back was a pamphlet from his grandfather's funeral, who was a pastor. Critics of the album said that it seems that he's wrestling with the reality is everything that he gave up to pursue for rap, worth it? And he actually represents a growing trend as actually Christianity continues to decline in our culture at large as people ask this question, down another 12% in the population of America in the last 10 years. You can read in Pew Research's uh, annual study. It's easy to ask the question, is the gospel worth it? Well, the answer is a resounding yes, because the gospel is worth everything because it is the good news of the God who saves. Listen, on your own, you may live a life worth of emulation. You may gather many finances and resources, but you'll miss out on the sacrificial love of the God who purchased you by the blood of his son. You may live a good life, one that is upstanding, moral, and maybe even a semblance of true, but apart from the message of the God that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance, you have very little. See, the good news is that by, the, by God's grace, we're not measured by what we do for God, but rather we're invited to live life with God. This is the gospel that is worth everything that God would come and save us by his own volition and purposes, not by our own. This is why Paul can do what he does. This is why Paul can press on towards Jerusalem even as he knows there's impending doom awaiting him. This is why Paul can hear a prophecy about what is to come sitting with those who are mourning and press on towards what God has called him to. This is why Paul can raise a young man from the dead and immediately go back to proclaiming the good news of what God has done unfazed because it's worth more than anything. This did not stop with Paul either, but the early believers became famous for their sacrificial ways of loving God, even in the face of imminent danger, because they believed that the gospel was worth more than their very lives. This is the confidence which led martyrs to sing hymns as they were led into the arena. This is what led people to pray for those who were burning them at the stake. And this is what led the Christians to go into the plague, to take care of the sick, even as the Roman authorities left. Their actions reflected a belief that the gospel was worth more than anything they could ever possess. Or as one historian puts it, it's enough to unsettle anybody's worldview. See, the gospel is worth more than we could ever imagine. It's the work of God that is for all people, that sustains us in the midst of opposition and is worth everything. The question to you, brothers and sisters, is, do you believe what do you believe that the gospel is worth? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of the God who saves? Do you believe that the gospel is worth more than anything else than you could ever imagine? Do you believe the gospel is worth more than life itself? As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. 1949 Jim Elliot was a young man looking to find his way in the world recently graduating from college he'd studied theology he graduated with honors and while he was looking to see what to do next he attended the first gathering of the evangelical theological society and it was while he was attending this event that Jim penned in his journal he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose He never knew how right he would be in journaling these words. He soon heard about the Aka tribe in Ecuador, a small unreached people group that actually received their name from another tribe in the area, the Quechua people, who named them after their word for savages. Elliot started to prepare as soon as he heard about this group of people for ministry in the jungle, gathering a group of friends to go with him. It's during this preparation time that he got married to his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, in 1953, and they actually had their first and only daughter, Valerie, in 1955. They eventually, during that time, made contact with the Akha tribe, the tra- contact that they so desperately had longed for, planning to meet them on a sandbar with gifts in order to build a relationship. Instead, on January 8, 1957, they landed to meet with the Aka tribe and were ambushed by a band of warriors, and all of them were killed. And they actually became maybe some of the most famous martyrs in the evangelical church. And after these five men were killed, you wouldn't blame Elizabeth Elliot for being bitter with God over the death of her husband, maybe even leaving the faith because of what God had taken from her and as she could feel. Yet during this time, she stumbled across the words in her husband's journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 1958, just a mere year later, her and Rachel Saint, sister of Nate Saint, another one of the men martyred, made contact with the Akká tribe, serving amongst them for over the next two years, proclaiming the gospel to them. In fact, now if you Google their names, they'll say that the Akká tribe's religion is... Christianity. Elizabeth spent the rest of her life proclaiming the good news of the gospel, becoming a leader in in evangelicalism. See, for Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, the gospel was worth more. For Jim, the gospel was worth more than his life. For Elizabeth, the gospel was worth more than her bitterness and doubts. They believed that the gospel was for all people, even in the face of opposition, even when it led to death and hardship. They believed that the gospel was worth more than anything else. Brothers and sisters, may the gospel be worth more than anything else because they are no fools who give what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this year and the end of this decade, as we set our eyes towards a new year and new decade, Lord, May the gospel be worth more than anything else. Lord, may, may we not forget that the gospel is for all people. May we not grow weary in the face of discouragement or opposition. And Lord, may at all times we remember the good news of the gospel that saved us. Lord, may we remember the worth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that this evening for anyone in here who is wrestling with that question, Lord, that you bolster them. Lord, that they may be stirred in their hearts to embrace the good news of the gospel for the first time. And Lord, may we not forget all of the beautiful and wonderful and lovely things that you are doing, even in the face of hard things. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for all that you are doing here in this room and for the opportunity to gather together as a family. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.